The talk tonight is about balancing care and detachment. The Buddha said that mind precedes all mental states. Mind is their chief. If with an impure mind a person speaks or acts, suffering follows them like the wheel that follows the foot of an ox. Mind precedes all mental states. Mind is their chief. They are all mind wrought. If with a pure mind a person speaks or acts, happiness follows them like a never departing shadow. He's saying that our happiness <clears throat> and our suffering are all mind wrought. They are originating in ourselves. All of us beings in this universe want to be happy. The Buddhist teachings are concerned with relieving suffering at the deepest level. <clears throat> Finding some context for understanding the suffering and pain in our lives in this world means facing this world, facing life just as it is, accepting it, coming to understand it, on deeper and deeper levels of reality. And this is no easy task. There are many levels to understand. There are many layers to the onion to unpeel within ourselves. <clears throat> Our own minds are formidable opponents. We get so easily seduced by our own conditioned defenses. Our ways are hidden, our not-so-hidden ways of not being here, of running away from pain or holding on to pleasure. It's interesting because even though these defenses don't really work for us, meaning that they don't really bring happiness, they're temporary <laughs> relief. They're, they're like a temporary relief, but they're not really getting to the root of the problem. So because they're a temporary relief, we still have to run away from pain and shut down to life. Most human beings <clears throat> choose to flow downstream to not to do not doing the work that they need to do on themselves to save themselves. The Buddha said that there's very few beings that will choose to go upstream. When the Buddha <coughs> had his moments um, under the Bodhi tree and became what is said to be fully enlightened, he put his hand on our dear planet Earth as a witness to his awakening, his full awakening, his complete understanding. He didn't want to teach. He felt there were few people who could understand what he came to understand about suffering and ending suffering. He looked deeply into the world and he saw the profundity and the awesomeness of the suffering in this world. He saw that there were some beings who had just a thin coat of dust on their eyes who with some guidance could wake up, who could understand what he had understood. It's said that the Buddha was omniscient, but that he only chose to teach what was necessary for us human beings to learn to face the suffering and to end it, to free themselves. 
coming to terms with the suffering of this world, opening to it, understanding it, and then responding <clears throat> takes a great balance of opening the heart and detachment. As you've heard in some of my talks, because there was so much um, pain in my childhood, nature was a place for me to go to as a refuge, as a place to find um, a stillness and quietness that could help me get through <coughs> another day. I had a favorite tree in college. It was a Later I found out it was what is called a weeping beech. I called it the electric tree. <clears throat> I worshipped the tree because it had become such a great friend to me. In the autumn, in the great rains, um, each drop on the tree would sometimes light up and reflect the whole sky. Um, in the summer, its leaves would create shade that I would lie under. And in the winter, the branches would be covered by snow, and I used to hide in this place a lot. One day, there was a professor who was a naturalist, was <coughs> standing by the tree with some students, and they all had clippers, and they were all starting to <coughs> cut the branches of the tree. And I got so upset, I ran over and I yelled at the professor. And I said, what are you doing to this tree? Stop it. <clears throat> and in those few moments after I said that to him, he caught me. He was my first guru. He could tell that I loved the tree. So he explained to me how pruning the tree was like pruning, you know, like cutting your hair so that it keeps it healthy. And then he started to tell me all these wonderful stories about the tree and its history. And um, he knew so much from his study, his study and his observation. So he lured me into this world of studying nature instead of just sitting in it, as I was doing. And I ended up taking 23 credits with them. I took, you know, studied birds and forests and flowers. He had developed in his particular world a balance between this care and love of nature and the scientific study of nature. He taught me that I could get to know the flowers, the trees, the birds, whatever rocks. Um, not only by caring for them, but by, by, by looking very closely at them through many windows. Maybe I would paint them, or maybe I would... You know, he gave me a project where I just went to this one tree for a whole semester, day after day, and would stay with the tree an hour a day and just be with it. And, and it's like worlds open up when you, when you study. You learn the natural history and you learn the families and habits. Uh, what he taught me was that the scientific study doesn't have to be this cold observation, that the detachment doesn't have to be cold, that it can be balanced with this incredible care connection, uh, that one can be very involved rather than indifferently um, separate. So he was the first person in my life that taught me that there was this possibility of balance of this care and attachment. Care, by care in this particular talk, I mean compassion. The Buddha taught that compassion was the quivering, it's a beautiful word, he taught that it was the quivering of the heart in response to suffering, whether it's in ourselves or in another being. It's wanting to relieve the suffering of ourselves or others. I'm not sure if Steve mentioned it today in the Karuna meditation, but the near enemy of compassion is called pity 
because it's a near enemy in that it will look like compassion, but it's actually feeling um, separate from the pain. It's an aversion to the suffering. It's not an openness of heart to the suffering. It's the aversion to the unpleasantness of the pain. The far enemy of compassion is called cruelty because it's not possible to feel compassion and cruelty at the same time. The cause of compassion is seeing the helplessness of those overwhelmed by suffering. And it's said that compassion succeeds when it will make cruelty totally subside. And it's said that it fails when it produces sorrow. Compassion is a natural, spontaneous response of an open heart. There needs to be this metta or unconditional love, this openness of heart for us to be able to open to this suffering. And as I've said already, this openness of heart, this care needs to be balanced with detachment and wisdom. If the heart is overly engaged and not balanced with understanding, it so easily crosses the border into wanting to get rid of the pain, aversion. The heart can get so easily overwhelmed, so easily broken by the pain in this world. If you think about hunger on this planet, or war on this planet, the pollution on the planet, just, I mean, that's just sort of, it's unimaginable, the suffering on this planet. We can transform our awareness of suffering with compassion. So compassion doesn't mean that we're avoiding the pain, we're allowing it, we're opening to it, understanding it, and then responding to that pain in whatever skillful way that we choose at that point. So I'm not leaving out the response, the action. When I um, emerged from northern Maine after eight years <laughs> up there, I decided to join the staff at IMS for a year as a cook. And I also took on the garden and all the plants that were there. There was a teacher named Tampulu Sayadaw who came. He was a forest monk from Burma who came to teach there at the beginning of my stay there, I um, had a tremendous amount of work with the garden and the plants. There were a lot of bugs that were attacking the plants, so I went to talk with him because there was this precept of not killing when I got there. So he told me um, to do everything I could do to save the plants, but that I wasn't to kill the bugs. It was quite a difficult situation for me because I um, was really <laughs> worried about the plants. So I was doing everything I could. And right around the same time that, that this was happening, I had to drive to this town nearby. And as I was driving there, I came across this huge snapping turtle on the road, who, which had just been hit by a car. And it had been really hit badly. The whole top of the shell was crushed and the turtle was still alive but obviously not going to make it. So here was this precept again, not killing it. It was sort of my first, the first time I was up against um, trying to work with it so completely. Uh, so I pulled off the side of the road and I, you know, gathered up the turtle and I brought it under a pine tree. And I felt um, 
like I was really torn between wanting to just put it so-called out of its misery uh, and try to keep the precept. So I decided to follow Tampulu Sayadaw's advice and I just sat with the turtle until it died. But I didn't leave the turtle under the tree. Every time I would sit, that image would come up with me, and I was really torn between um, the different feelings and emotions I was having. And then I had a chance to do a longer retreat, and the, <laughs> the turtle came up again. Uh, and I realized that the same feelings I had about the turtle, I had had about my mother when I watched her get cancer and slowly die. And I hadn't realized that during the time of watching my mother dying that I had had a tremendous amount of aversion to the pain. It's like as a child I just couldn't accept that there could be that much pain possible for another human being, especially someone I didn't want to die. I think that we all have very difficult lessons in life to learn what compassion really is, to learn the difference between aversion to pain, not, not wanting to get rid of the pain, and actually opening to it and responding from that opening rather than the aversion. It's like I think that uh, uh, we get many teachings about this on many different levels. So when we can open to the pain and not want to get rid of the pain, we can let this come and go and develop understanding. So what does it mean that we need to balance compassion with detachment, balance with understanding? There was a sentence um, from the Bodhisattva of Compassion, her name is Kuan Yin. She said that the winds of circumstance blow across emptiness. Whom can they harm? The winds of circumstance blow across emptiness. Whom can they harm? This is detachment. And it's very hard to have this understanding when there's, you know, a very difficult time. There's that, it's the understanding that there's no one behind the suffering, that if there's sadness, there's just sadness. If there's aversion, there's just aversion. That ultimately there's no solid, separate self behind this process of life. That life is just a process, a continually transforming process. So that say we have um, the emotion of fear in regard to pain, that we see that it's just a passing emotional state, that it's just passing through like clouds in the sky, that we can learn to open to it, not identify with it. We can be with it, feel it very fully, and let it go. And that letting go is um, very important aspect of this letting it come and go. And feeling it is a very important aspect. We can't let it go unless we feel it. It's the same process in regard to our own physical and emotional pain or working with others' physical or emotional pain. Say a person has difficulty working with anger. We don't try to get rid of the anger. Anger is a very unpleasant, painful emotion. We can accept that anger arises merely because it has arisen. Now you can't control it. It'll happen really quick. Say one isn't mindful of something unpleasant, say a very strong physical pain. 
if we're not mindful in that moment of the unpleasantness, there'll be aversion and it'll happen really quickly. And usually it'll be aversion, aversion to the aversion, extreme aversion, before we know it. You know, it happens very, very quickly. And usually it's when we're, I can't stand this knee pain that we're aware that there's aversion. Um, So the sense that we can't control when something arises or that we never know what's going to happen, that's the perspective of dukkha. If we can see that this anger is impermanent, that it won't last, that's seeing from the perspective of anicca or impermanence. We can see it as not me, as not mine, not my anger, it's not I. That's seeing through the lens of anatta. Wisdom is working with these three perspectives of dukkha, of this sense of you never know what's going to happen, this vulnerability that we share as human beings, of anicca or impermanence, and the sense that there's no solid separate eye behind the process. Wisdom is understanding that there's nothing solid behind this anger. So when we have this understanding, there's absolutely no need to repress it because there's nothing solid in it. We, we have such a deep understanding. We don't need to repress it or avoid it. But we also don't need to indulge it, which would mean drowning in it and getting caught in it. You see how important the understanding is with compassion, because if the understanding isn't there, we'll drown in the pain, or we'll repress it. So we're not getting rid of anything. We're developing the strength to feel whatever's there fully and let it come and go. And then there's no more fear of feeling anger. No matter what's happening in life, whether it's a sound or a sight or a taste or a touch or a smell or a thought or an emotion, if anything bothers you, (laughs) if you're having any aversion to anything, it means you aren't seeing it clearly. The true test, if you're free, is when something that you think you got rid of comes back. (laughs) Say it's a a knee pain or some physical pain or say it's some emotion or whatever it is. If it comes back and you say, oh no, not that again. This is not freedom. (laughs) This is not what we call liberation. That's called aversion. But if you go, oh, it's just anger. My good friend Anger, I know how to work with you, or I'm going to try to work with you one more time. Whatever it is, there's that freedom, there's that understanding that it's workable, that it's something that will come and go. Our, um, this place we've taken birth in, this human realm, is a mixture of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings. And freedom has nothing to do with opening up the body. Freedom has nothing to do with opening up the body. It has nothing to do with getting rid of emotions. And it has nothing to do with working anything out. Transformation occurs whenever we are fully present now. Freedom occurs whenever we're not identified with what's happening now. Freedom cannot happen in the past, and it can't happen in the future. It can only happen in the present moment. And it doesn't depend on what's happening. It does not depend on experience. So only in one moment when we're not identified is this freedom possible. This is great news. No matter what's happening, it's okay. 
no matter what you've been through, no matter what karma you have, you can get free. It's such good news. So with detachment, we can help ourselves or others face the pain, to tolerate it, to learn to swim in it, to understand it, so that we're not having to drown in it, that we actually grow from it, that we transform with it, and then let it go. So true detachment is born of seeing clearly, and it brings about the possibility for this care, this openness of heart to be balanced with detachment, which is true compassion. And when we have true compassion, we don't turn to mush in the face of pain. We don't drown, and we don't turn to indifference, which is on the near enemy of equanimity. It's the near equ- enemy of detachment. It might Indifference might look like you're being okay with what's happening, but you're cut off, you're not open, you're disconnected. I had the opportunity some years ago to work with three men who had been in a mental hospital for 20 years. It was a program where the staff that I was in, um, we were supposed to help these three guys uh, leave the hospital and adjust to our culture. I wasn't very adjusted to the culture at the time, so it seemed like kind of a ludicrous situation to be in. (laughs) But here I was (laughs) in this situation. (laughs) So I had done some sitting up to this point, which was lucky for me, unlucky for the rest of the staff. Uh, What was quite interesting that after a year, there was 100% burnout. The staff turnover was 100%, which was quite interesting. So I decided to look at how that seemed to happen. Um, and there were, it seemed like there were two reasons to me. One was that we were trained to come up with all these goals for these guys, with them, of course. But um, after a year of kind of people having these goals in mind for these men, um, these these men, their rate of change was quite slow. You know, you might call it near apathy. You know, you might call it pretty close to 100% apathy. So the more a person had in their mind that there was going to be this result of change from all this energy they were putting in, the more depressing the job got. And I felt really grateful for having done quite a bit of vipassana up to this point, so I felt like I could be there in the moment without needing results. And I think that that's what's really freeing, actually, for people. What's really healing is to not, in this situation, have much of an agenda, if any. And it was just, it was amazing. Uh, There was this one man who, one of his goals was to go jogging every day. And so every morning he'd come downstairs and say, I'm going to go jogging, you know, and he'd get dressed up in a sweatsuit. And, you know, you could see the staff who were having him as their, you know, person to work with would get all excited because <laughs> here this guy was going to go out jogging. And he never, he never went out jogging. After a year, like, he'd get his thing on and then he'd sit down in front of the TV and have a cigarette. <laughs> you know, it was like, <laughs> it was fantastic. You know, it was, it was a great show for, you know, somebody learning not to have results, but the staff was <laughs> And I remember, I think there was one moment in the year that I felt there was one sense of some change. There was one man who, um, he was put, he was one of the, he was put in the hospital by his father when he was really young, uh, and he didn't seem so actually disturbed to me except incredibly um, deprived of any kind of contact. And um, he used to do this walking in the 
we were in this normal apartment area, you know, lots of apartments and cars, and um, he used to do what looked like to me walking meditation in the parking lot. And one of the goals of the program was to get him to stop doing this strange walking (laughs) in the parking lot, because it really, (laughs) it upset the neighbors. (laughs) And I was on the night shift, which was great, because I didn't have to get so involved in the goals. Um, So I switched with somebody to the day shift, uh, and he was out there doing his (laughs) walking meditation. Uh, And somebody called him in, and he came in, and he always, one of the other goals of the program was he carried this wooden plaque with him all the time. You know, it was a strange little wooden square thing, which, again, to me, it wasn't so, such a big problem, but everyone wanted him to stop carrying this thing. And so, um, he was carrying this wooden plaque as he was walking into the doorway and I was just sitting in the doorway because there wasn't really much to do in this job like I just sat in the doorway and so he was (laughs) it was the perfect job for a meditator really (laughs) so so I was just sitting there watching him doing walking meditation he came in and I just got it it was one of those rare moments in life where you get something and I saw I saw the plaque and it, it was blue and I said Oh, it's such a pretty color blue. And he just, his heart just opened, and he was so happy, and he said, Oh, you like this. You know, and he started telling me all about it. He had made it years ago, and he had little hieroglyphics on it. It's the only thing he ever made in his life. And it was his favorite color. And then I just talked with him about the color blue for a really long time, about how I love the color of the sky and morning glories and... And then he went upstairs, and one of the goals of the program was to get him out of his hospital clothes. He, he just wore his hospital clothes all the time. And he went upstairs, and he changed his shirt, and he put on a blue shirt. And it was so incredible. It was like the only change I had seen that whole year. And it was just from saying, I really like the color. And you see, that's really being in the moment and that was hard I mean that took that was a year's work for me and that's a very you know from our perspective that might seem very slow Um, but I think that in terms of understanding where any of us are it's like it takes a lot of compassion but also equanimity meaning that I believe in lifetimes, so if you don't, it's sort of hard to keep this context in mind. But you can't see a person's life from the perspective of one lifetime and make a judgment about it. It's like for him, where he was was just the right place. Uh, And it was, um, it's like when I think about my nephew in the Marines and this crazy war that might happen, it's like this is all happening and it's like, we have to take a perspective that's much bigger about all this. We don't know why. We don't know why this is happening. And that takes tremendous balance and detachment to back off enough to see that um, maybe a person in this lifetime won't ever have a relationship. Maybe they're working on something else. That's okay. Maybe they'll be a monk for the rest of their life. That's okay. Maybe they get married and have kids. You know, whatever it is, we're all working in areas, and it it takes a much bigger perspective. Maybe I get to work with terror this lifetime. Great. You know, that's that's a good thing to work on. So, part of that this balance is learning to let go and let us all, all beings, live out their karma. And we can't control this. We never know what's going to happen. And we have to do the best we can. Actually, one act of care in one moment is a lot when it's genuine, it can be very powerful. It's like we don't have to save the world. And it's okay when we're not compassionate 
You know, some people really get upset if they're feeling uncompassionate. It's okay to be closed down. You know, that's where we are then. And until we give ourselves the permission to be there and to rest, we won't open again. We don't have to know everything. We don't have to figure everything out. It's just that in one moment of genuine care and mindfulness, a lot happens. It's important to not take ourselves too seriously. I think humor in uh, this human realm is... You know, it's not on any of the lists in Buddhism, but I think it's just understood that it's on all the lists. Like, humor humor is has to be um, <laughs> essential <clears throat> at times. Mahatma Gandhi said that if I didn't have a sense of humor, I would have committed suicide long ago. It's helpful to laugh at ourselves. The last time I gave this quote, um, nobody laughed, (laughs) which was... (laughs) I got over it, but... (laughs) If one of you could just chuckle at everything. (laughs) There's a... This is about not taking ourselves too seriously. Okay, you ready for this one? (laughs) If nobody chuckles, I'm going to drop it. I'm not going to use it again. (laughs) Uh, Okay. It's probably not that funny. (laughs) Watermelons. Even they can manage themselves. I don't know, I just keep having this image of a watermelon in the field. Watermelons, even they can manage themselves. I mean, if watermelons can manage themselves, why can't we? (laughs) Well, thanks, I might try it. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty... Detachment is born out of equanimity. Equanimity is being okay with whatever's happening. Equanimity is very, very sweet. It's one of the sweetest things that we can experience as human beings. It's this deep balance of mind. The mind is unshakable. It's the opposite of the reacting mind the opposite of reacting with attachment to pleasure or reacting with aversion to unpleasantness. The Buddha taught that it's possible for us to be free from greed, from attachment, from aversion or ill will, and delusion or ignorance. This doesn't mean that we're free in the human realm from unpleasant and pleasant and neutral. It means that um, we're free from reacting. So when we hear this possibility that we can be free in this way, we usually apply our great willpower, and we've learned a lot of striving in our culture. We're usually pretty good at it. And then we apply it to this idea, and we want to be perfectly free from greed, hatred, and delusion right now. We want to be rid of them before we've even (laughs) felt them, really, and understood them. Um, And so I think that a lot of the practice is learning how to work with a reacting mind so that when, say, aversion or anger comes up, the tendency is to go, (laughs) 
I don't have anger. You know, that's not. <laughs> I'm over that. Or, you know, I, I'm going to get free of this so I shouldn't be feeling it somehow. Or say we have this incredible wanting coming up. You know, this is what we're uncovering on a retreat. We're uncovering the two-year-old mind. You know, what we've done so well <laughs> as uh, learning to function as adults is to cover all that up. But when we come on retreat, we're uncovering these very deep roots that are very visible in children. You know, when you're around a two-year-old, it's either, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want, or, no, 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 no. It's like really clear. <laughs> There's nothing cushioning it. It's really clear. And this is how, you know, this is what we discover when we look at the mind, when we take all our defenses off. Uh, and we don't like it. We, we want to be perfect. We want to have this sweet, sweet equanimity <laughs> because it feels so good. Um, equanimity is when the war is over. The, the mind of a fully enlightened being is said to be um, to have six-limbed equanimity. This is equanimity with hearing, seeing, tasting, touching, smelling, thinking. It's equanimity at, at each sense door, moment by moment. Uh, and it's the difference between being at war and at peace. Equanimity is the nonviolent mind. It's not having to fight with the inside or the outside. Stephen or I will talk a lot more about equanimity in the next few days. Um, we're at the place in the retreat that you've opened a lot. <laughs> And then uh, equanimity is needing to ripen now. I mean, that's what you'll be working with these last days, is, is seeing, you'll see the reacting mind very clearly, and sometimes it'll feel like I'm getting worse. Um, but it isn't. It means that you're actually doing really well. You can also, we, Stephen mentioned the other night, yogi mind. Yogi mind is this intensity of seeing this, two-year-old mind. During the three-month course at IMS, after about a month, because people are so in for a month, they tend to lose any sense of um, connection with their outer life, and IMS becomes their home, just like this has become you know, your home, but in a much bigger scale on a three-month course. You can imagine if you're in for a month, and then because of that, the slightest territorial stuff, um, really becomes war. <laughs> I mean, here it's been sort of, you know, you can see it. People, you know, have their territorial stuff here and there and all over the place. You know, it's happening. But you can imagine if we were a month going, it would get much more critical. Uh, and I use this example a lot, like in at IMS, um, there's a, it was a novitiate for young adolescent boys entering the priesthood and there was a bowling alley built in the basement and um, it was dismantled but people do walking meditation in this bowling area area and there's this light bulb down there that has never been covered so it's this bare light bulb so some people absolutely hate this light bulb the light and they, there's a night light so some people don't want the light bulb on and other people want the light bulb on so usually about a month in, there's this war going on where people are turning off and on the light. You know, it's like whoever gets down there first gets the first dibs, you know, and then somebody comes down. And it really becomes, you know, the biggest thing in the world. Uh, and then after a while, the maintenance department starts having to replace the light bulb every day. <laughs> hey, can you believe it? Somebody takes it so the light can't be turned on. Yeah, and it's like, you know, I'm just giving you an example of this because uh, it helps to have a humor about this. You know, this is uncovering 
what's underneath this war that's going on. This war that might happen in Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and Iraq is not outside of our hearts. It's happening right in here. And this is why we come and do this hard work. It's because we're trying to learn to be nonviolent. And you can see how difficult it is. It's really not a joke. This professor I had in college um, was one of the first environmentalists in this country, and I consider him one of my greatest teachers. The college I went to was in a very polluted city. He had a, it was also a kind of a jock school, which most of the students uh, had no understanding of what this person was trying to do. Uh, and he had a greenhouse outside one of the dorms. There was a, quite a bit of alcohol drunk by the students. And so there was this beautiful garden he created outside this dorm in a greenhouse. And every once in a while he'd be out in the garden and he'd be hit on the head by a, a bottle <laughs> thrown out of the building. You know, and it was like the garden, every, every couple of days our students would have to you know, actually spend a long time cleaning the bottles, the alcohol bottles, out of the garden. Uh, When the Vietnam War uh, protests were at their extreme at the college and the Black Panthers were at the college and all the violence started, a lot of the professors either started quitting or getting fired if they took um, a stand against the war or with the black <coughs> students. And there was a certain point on campus that things got really, really uh, violent and hot and controversial. And I remember uh, this teacher was a Quaker, and I remember him one day, he took the day off, which he had never did before. Uh, and he went out in the woods for the whole day. And when he came back, I remember him being incredibly quiet, just really quiet, and really strong in his belief in nonviolence. It was like, um, it only took him a day. I mean, I look back and think about how intense that time was, but he just went to the woods and, and got in touch with what was very deeply true for him, and he followed that, even though there were so many pulls to do something else by so many people. Compared to the awareness that people had of the environment then, things have changed actually quite dramatically. In those days, he could have gotten incredibly discouraged and given up. And we're in the same boat today. There's, there's so much pollution, and there's, it's doesn't, we can't tell what's going to happen. Um, and it could, be, it could be easy to give up from one perspective. Yet every action done with care, every voice that is done with nonviolence and care makes a powerful effect in this world. And that's what we, we that's all we can do. That's, that's doing our best. When we go to a very deep place, feel the anger, feel the fear, feel the sadness, feel the feelings about whatever is painful let it come and go, and then respond with care, detachment. This has more power in the world than we can ever imagine. And then we just have to let go of control at that point. We don't know what's going to happen right now in this world. And this takes this tremendous balance, this tremendous balance of care and detachment. Let's sit for a few minutes.
May all beings live in peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.